I'm just looking at all of you and thanking God for each and every one of you and your families and your households. I am so thankful that the Lord blessed me with you. As my brothers and sisters in Christ, as fellow servants of our Lord Jesus Christ, as those who have learned, and I think I'm still learning this from all of you too, those of you who have learned how to come alongside of someone and love them in their pain and in their sorrows and in their troubles, as well as rejoice in all of their victories. This is the church. This is the body of Christ. And I'm so thankful. I'm privileged. I'm blessed. I'm humbled before God with this task ahead of us each and every day and every week of coming to God's word of learning of him and growing in him together and realizing that we have, we have a lot to do until the day of Jesus Christ. The good thing is we don't do it by ourselves. We do it together. We do it together. We've, uh, we've struggled this year, many, many of us, And it continues. Our dear brother, Pastor Joe Rosales from Ancient Past Christian Church, who was our Spanish pastor for many years here at, at Calvary. His, his mother passed away this week, and, and I just encourage you to pray for him and his family. He's such a dear brother. And, uh, and his, his wife, Sylvia, some of you who know Sylvia know that she's in a been in a wheelchair. She's kind of bedridden right now and she needs prayer. Um, uh, Joe recently actually had a, a sister that passed away as well. So it's, a, it's been a tough year. Uh, Bonnie Seta, who comes on Wednesday night, she's not here tonight, uh, but uh, she was uh, letting me know t- uh, today that her, her husband, uh, Martin's uh, grandmother, uh, passed away uh, and uh, they're going to ask uh, Pastor George. He's going to do the, ceremony, the service for them this Friday. But pray for the Sera family, if you will. C-E-R-A. Um, pray for Judy Ryback. Uh, she's back in intensive care. It's just a tremendous struggle. They had to put her back on the respirator. Uh, so it's it's... It's kind of a, still a, a struggle for her. This, they're still monitoring her, her, her heart as well, and uh, needing for her to wake up. And 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 it's it's been really tough for Sig and uh, you know with with the grandkids that they have to take care of. And you know we need to pray for that family because uh, you know Sig is 80 plus years old and Judy's getting there and and, and uh, they've they've actually taken this responsibility of uh, taking care of their grandkids uh, and it's it's been tough so we pray for them and uh, we have uh, the men's prayer uh, 
evening, the evening of prayer, our prayer time on, on Friday night, that I want you all, especially ladies, pray for this, this group of men gathering together this Friday night. We're going to come and pray and learn about prayer. We're going to worship the Lord. And, and you know, we, we, we need to really light a fire under the men of this church. Not that, that they need it, you know. I mean, they do. We all do. <laughs> but we need to pray. We need to pray for them because, you know, we're, we're living in the last days. And, and I, I can't emphasize it enough that living in the last days should change our way of thinking about how we live our lives as believers. Especially, especially when too often our, our focus is so much on ourselves. And I'm not saying that to spank you. I'm saying that because it's true. We all go through that. We all have bills to pay. We all have deadlines to meet. Sometimes we don't meet them. And it gets hard. We have a God that loves us so much, we've got to go to Him. And I don't know that we're going to Him as much as we ought to. So we ought to do that. So we've got to let the fire under the men. Because the men have been given the responsibility by God in His Word to be the leaders in this church. And we need to start doing that. Wholesale. Not just a few, but wholesale. Because if we'll be leaders in our homes and leaders in our families, we will be leaders in the church. So, let's pray. Father, we lay our hearts before you this evening. And we confess, Lord, the the times of selfishness, Lord, that we oftentimes exhibit, not to everyone else, but in our own hearts, thinking more of ourselves than of others. And at times, Lord, thinking in in terms of unbelief rather than in trust. With that in mind, Lord, I, I pray that as we lay these burdens down before you, Lord, if we if we get angry about what is being said in this prayer, that we really need to check our hearts. No, it should humble us to really seek your face, Lord, tonight. That you would radically change us because of the days and times in which we live. But simply because we are your children. Simply because we are your servants. We are your followers. We're your disciples. We're your servants. We're your, we're your learners. Lord, we're, we're your, the extension of your love and grace in this world. But let that love and grace and mercy begin in our homes. Let it begin in our hearts. Let it begin, Lord, where it helps and hurts the most. We pray for Judy and Sig, Lord, because... Boy, they really need a, just a, a move of your Holy Spirit, a, a miracle, Lord God, a, which you alone can do to heal Judy, Lord, and give her strength and life once again. To enjoy, Lord, the, these years of their lives, Sigs and Judy's lives together. 
We pray for Bonnie's family, Bonnie Martin's family, and, and Pastor Joe Rosales's family, Lord, in their times of grief. I pray for Mike King, who found out that he's he's got uh, uh, a problem in his is in his knee that was greater than he thought, but. Uh, thank, we thank you, Lord, that he, he doesn't have to have surgery, but nonetheless, there's still some some things that need to to be built up in his in his knees. So, we ask you, Father, just give him grace and strength and healing. And for the many others, Lord, that in our hearts tonight we lift up to you. We ask that you would heal our our friends, our families, members, our are the people we work with, the people that are going through those struggles tonight, Lord. We can lift these things up to you. We can come to you. Because you said I'd be with you. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you know not of. So we stand on that word tonight. Help us understand, Lord, the passage we're dealing with tonight. May it stir in our hearts, Lord, that that motivation that we need to have as we serve not only ourselves, but each other and the church and you more than ever. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, don't forget that uh, this coming weekend on uh, Saturday and Sunday, we're going to be blessed with two or more being here. What a wonderful time to invite people to come with you so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and hear some great music, too, at the same time. Don't forget that on Sunday, Sunday the cafe is going to be closed because we're going to have our potluck at 4.30. Bring your best dish. I am waiting. I'm going to have a fork in hand because I want to taste everything you bring. We're going to have to run a little bit this week before then, about half a mile or something like that. But anyway... But I'm going to do what I can to get ready because I want to taste everything you guys bring and make, okay? So I'm going to try try my best. Monday, I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, we'll leave that in the Lord's hands. <coughs> Six o'clock, we're going to have our night of worship, Sunday. So please, please, please come and uh, enjoy. And even if you don't bring a dish, we want you to be here because the blessing isn't so much the food, it's it's the fellowship. And, and what we're going to be able to do as far as worshiping the Lord together. So don't forget that on Sunday night. Now they'll be here on Saturday night for the service and then also on Sunday morning as well. So bring people to church. Bring them with you. People need the Lord. They really do, don't they? People need the Lord, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> You can't keep that to yourself now. It's not like, we've got the Lord. I don't care about anybody else. (laughs) Jesus says, hey, get out there. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I'll be with you always in that that respect. Revelation 16. Oh, I I could keep talking all night. Sometimes you all think I do that anyway. Revelation 16, the last part of it. We're going to finish tonight. It's an interesting thing about Revelation because we've talked a lot about how it it, do, it it follows a certain chronology, but then it doesn't. We get some chronology, you know, some some time from one place to another, and then we get to a place where we kind of go back a little bit, and then we we examine some other things, and we go forward a little bit in time, and then we come back. We've seen that with the judgments, the 
the uh, seal judgments and then the bold, uh, the uh, trumpet judgments and then the bold judgments. So there is that back and forth that goes on. <clears throat> We've referred, as we've been going through the bold judgments, back to the trumpet judgments that coincide with the bold judgments, whereas the trumpet judgments were a little bit lighter, then later on comes the greater judgment and it's a, you know, and it, it, it covers more, you know, in other words, it's a greater judgment. Have you ever thought that when those judgments are given in the scriptures, a little bit of judgment is given to say, hey, wake up and get right with me. God, God's saying that, <clears throat> but then the judgment gets a little greater. And then what happens? He says, hey, I'm still God and I'm still in control, but you need to come to me because the next judgment, the next series of judgments is not going to be fun at all. And then the people reject the Lord and he has to then come with that last judgment. This is what we see here in chapter 16. All of the all of the bowls are poured out in this one chapter. Now we are going to go back, see, as we get to chapter 17 and see the more detailed uh, explanation of these uh, of these last days that that John is seeing. But the the important thing here for us to realize is that how, how similar this is to the way that God, in His loving kindness toward His own people Israel, judged them. He judged them by, the, you know, He said, I've got to judge you because you're not doing this or that. And then, you know, it kind of brought them back to Him. But then they would do things again. And then He had to put a heavier judgment on them and said, look, return back to Me and I'll, and I'll deliver you. But then they rebelled more. And then what happened? They went into captivity. So it, this is just showing us the mercies of God in a time where, listen, we're, we're living, as we say so often in the last days, we look at the news and we see all of these locations and all of these places and all of these nations being mentioned that you think, you know, they're mentioned in the Bible. Uh, notwithstanding just the Middle East itself and Israel and Jerusalem itself. But everything else, you know, the geopolitical uh, turmoil that's going on th- around the world today, all of it is going to be focused back on that little strip of land called Israel today. And all the land that was promised to them by God, that He said, I'm going to restore to them, it takes us all the way over to the Euphrates River, mentioned in our text, this uh, first part of the text. So now we get to verse uh, 17, but we're going to start with verse 16. Again, because we need to make the connection here of what's taking place before the seventh bowl is poured out. So it says, they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Who gathered what? The unclean spirits of verses 13 and 14 were commissioned to gather the nations together to war against God at a place called Har Megiddo. So they gathered them together. And then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, It is done. That is the voice of God. It is done. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. Sounds kind of interesting and familiar, doesn't it? 
Where else did we hear thunderings and lightnings and voices? At Mount Sinai, when God gave the law. We've got to remember, God's law does not get canceled out. What did Jesus say? I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill it. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And now the great city was divided into three parts. The great city, of course, is Babylon. Uh, And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. And then every island fled away and the mountains were not found. And great hail from heaven fell upon men. Have you noticed the word great here? There's a lot of great in this, in this chapter. A lot of great things. We'll talk about it later. Great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. A talent. Oh, I'll talk about it later. No, I'll tell you now. It's 100 pounds. It's about 100 pounds. Can you imagine a hailstone 100 pounds? That's, that's a pretty big hailstone, man. I'd be running. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. Union Army General during the American Civil War, William Tecumseh Sherman, who succeeded General Ulysses S. Grant as commander of the Western Theater of that war in 1864, is credited with a very short and succinct quote that was actually a part of a larger speech that Sherman gave to the graduating class of the Michigan Military Academy in June of 1879. So many years after the Civil War. And while it has been quoted and misquoted into many variations, the three small, simple words at the end of this quote that I give you remain the same. And this is what he said. He said to these graduates of a military academy, he said, I've been where, I've been where you are now, and I know just how you feel. It's entirely natural that there should beat in the breast of every one of you a hope and desire that someday you can use the skill you have acquired here. Suppress it. You don't know the horrible aspects of war. I've been through two wars and I know. I've seen cities and homes in ashes. I've seen thousands of men lying on the ground, their dead faces looking up at the skies. And then he said this, I tell you, war is hell. War is hell. Say what you will about Sherman who led the Savannah campaign of the Civil War, often called Sherman's March to the Sea. You all know about that, don't you? In which his troops marched from Atlanta, Georgia, to the port of Savannah in seven days, 
destroying military targets, industrial targets, infrastructure, and civilian property, a strategy that is now known as scorched earth warfare, or what was known then as total war. But as many statements about the reality of war and its devastation reveal a heart of a person who saw no real glory in war. You cannot qualify war in harsher terms than I will, he said. War is cruelty and you cannot refine it. And again he said, I confess without shame that I am sick and tired of fighting. Its glory is all moonshine. Even success the most brilliant is over dead and mangled bodies with the anguish and lamentations of distant families appealing to me for sons, husbands and fathers. It is only those who have never heard a shot, never heard the shriek and groans of the wounded and lacerated that cry aloud for more blood, more vengeance, more desolation. There is nothing, you see, There is nothing glorious about the wars that men fight. For from the very beginning of mankind, fallen into sin and cast out of the garden, death, darkness and despair have prevailed. Satan's war against God has never in nearly 6,000 years taken even a slight vacation or lull or a cessation of hostilities. Never. Satan doesn't take a break when Christmas time comes. We sometimes do. Oh, I can't wait for the holidays. I can take a few days off. Right? Nothing wrong with that. Oh, I can't wait for the summer. I've got to take a few days off. I need the vacation time. Satan never takes vacation. He's constantly warring against God and warring against Christ and warring against the cross and warring against his people, warring against the Word of God. There's a tremendous battle taking place in our own country over the very Word of God. Cain wars against his brother Abel and the first casualty of war is a righteous man whose only fault, quote unquote, as it were, was his consecration and obedient commitment to his God. And to some extent, every seed of this war is carried in the hearts and minds of those who blindly and sometimes unknowingly follow in Satan's animosity toward our God. The enemy of our very souls never sleeps in trying and testing our defenses for weaknesses that can bring us to surrender our devotion to the Lord and silence our testimony of Jesus Christ and the cross. Which should help us to understand better the words of Psalm Now I know I quoted this last week, but I want you to see it again. Why? Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I mean, as we said last time, it is a vain thing to plot a, a war against God, isn't it? 
But why? There's the question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? I want you to to notice the kings of the earth. We were talking about the kings of the east, right, the other day? Which represent many nations, not just one nation. The kings of the earth set themselves. In other words, that phrase set themselves means they stand fast against. The kings of the earth set themselves and take, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. That word is Mashiach. His Messiah. Jesus. Saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. The world considers that what Jesus does and what God does is actually imprison us. And binds us. So they think that their war against God is one of breaking the bond so that we can just be free to do whatever we want to do the way we want to do it. However we want it to be happening in our own lives. We establish it all because really there's no God but me. And yet, if it wasn't for the standard of the Word of God from the very beginning, man would have destroyed themselves a long, long time ago. A very long time ago. Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Today, people say that those bonds and those cords is what we read with devotion and study each and every day of our lives. This does not bind us, folks. It frees us. It sets our hearts free to live our lives unto eternity with confidence not in what we do or how we've done it, but confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. As we look at our text throughout the whole of the chapter, we we have seen that, that these unclean spirits are gathering together the nations. Nations meaning all the nations of the world, west and east, east and west. And you know, we've had a tremendous uh, dichotomy, as it were, or just this, this great difference of philosophical opinion. Eastern thought, Western thought. Western philosophy is so different than Eastern philosophy. So there's this war between the East and the West and the West and the East. Rudyard Kipling wrote of the disparity and inequality between Easterners and Westerners and their philosophies and their values this way. He said, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet till earth and sky stand presently at God's great judgment seat. Well, that sounds pretty good. Kipling probably wasn't knowledgeable and aware of biblical prophecy that tells us quite plainly that East and West, just like Herod and Pilate, remember those two guys, they, they were not, they pretty much did not see things eye to eye in anything. 
But East and West, just like Herod and Pilate, will come together in a great meeting to oppose God and to oppose His anointed at a place called Har Megiddo, the place or the hill of slaughter. Just remember that even though these unclean spirits of verses 13 and 14 are commissioned to gather the kings of the earth for this great battle, it is still, as we learned somewhat last week, it is still the Lord who is in complete control. It is still the Lord who not only will permit these things, but it is God in essence has already planned it. He has planned it out. What has been poured out in chapter 16? The bowls of God's wrath. And not only the bowls of God's wrath, but it is the bowls of the fierceness of the wrath of God poured out upon the rebellious Christ-rejecting world that is to come. Our God has poured out the bowls of His wrath after plenty of warning to all, and now He follows through. The time has come. The time has come. It is done. That's what He says. From the throne it says, It is done. Look at that in verse six, uh, 17 again. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, though. If you'll notice, this is very important. He pours it out into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from heaven, or of heaven, from the throne, saying, It is done. Folks, it is not the same phrase as it is finished. It's different. The last judgment of God, which this is, of course, describing because it says, This is it. The last judgment of God upon a Christ-rejecting world is poured out into the air, and that might seem kind of strange. But when you read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it it all becomes much clearer who that last judgment is to be upon. Let's look at that. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul, first of all, says, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Christians, you need to remember this each and every day of your lives. You who once were dead in trespasses and sins have been made alive through Jesus Christ. Never forget that. But then he says this, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. Now, i got to go back. He says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according, notice, to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We know, we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. We know that. And so the last judgment will fall upon his kingdom, the kingdom of Satan. And with this judgment we read, it is done. So that is the general picture of the, of the last, of the last of the judgments. First of all, given to us generally. As we said, we'll go into chapter 17 and 18 and we begin to look at the specifics of it. 
So we go back a little bit, but, but that's the thing. We now see that God has said and declared, it is done. And with this judgment, he says, it is done. And again, I want to remind you, because I know I spoke of this last time, but when Jesus cried out upon the cross of Calvary, he said, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. It is finished. And what Jesus was saying, in effect, was that a door had now been opened for man to enter into eternal life with God because he died for our sins. And that makes Jesus that door. He said the door has now been opened for man to enter into eternal life with God and Jesus is that door. He is the door. You read in John chapter 10 and verses 7 through 9 that it says that Jesus said to them again, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. In other words, the true sheep hear the voice of their shepherd. And he says, I am the door. Second time he says it. Do you think it's important? If Jesus says something one time, it's important. If he says it twice, it's very important. When he says something three times, it's extremely important. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. But now, the words that we read in verse 17 of our text, Revelation 16, brings us to a far different meaning. The words, it is done by God himself from his throne. Tells us this. Now the door of opportunity for man to enter into that relationship with God is closed. And all that remains is the sentencing of man for his rebellion. You know what one of the pictures of that is? Talked about it last week as well. The ark that God commanded Noah to build. We are clearly told that it is God who closes the door of the ark. After Noah had gathered all of the animals according to the plan of God to put upon that that vessel, Scripture clear is clearly stated that God closed the door. And no one at that point could go in or out. Remember with Jesus? He's the door and we can go in and out of, of pasture. We, we're there. We, we, we're just... We're safe because of our shepherd. But this picture says, hey, door's closed. The opportunity's gone. The summer has come, the harvest has ended, and people are not saved. The question that some people need to ask is, will I endure? Will I be able to endure the final wrath of God at Megiddo then, or will I embrace the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary now? See, we don't think in those terms today, because we think we have enough, we have enough time. Some people think, oh, no, I don't need to go to church now. I'm having too much fun in this, in this world. That's, that's the problem. You're having too much fun in this world. 
We need to realize that God said, we're not of this world. I don't know about you, but those of you that spend any amount of time in the world at, at all in, in, in taking in the, you know, the, the pleasures, the, the passing pleasures for a season of the world, didn't you find it kind of empty? I mean, you know, you might have, from, for a while, you know, that passing pleasure was, you know, pretty exciting, but then, you know, after a while, it was like, oh man, I was a dud. And you had to look for another exciting thing to do or another exciting thing to, you know, to participate in. You know, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I, I get so excited about just the love of Jesus, the, the presence of the Lord, the, the things that he gives us in his word to do, the, the great things that he allows us to do for other people, the, you know, the, 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 the opportunities to tell people about Jesus, to see the change in people's lives, to experience the miracles that God does through, you know, just through the power of his Holy Spirit. I mean, just amazing over and over and over and over again. We would be like these, you know, like, like the woman at the well. You know, you can, you can drink of that water and you're going to be thirsty again. But of the water that I give you, Jesus said to her, you'll never thirst again. And you'll never hunger. And yet daily as believers, we hunger and thirst after righteousness every day because that is what gets us going every morning. To know what God has for us today. Folks, the choice is theirs now. I hope you've already made the choice and come to realize that all along God brought you to salvation and God loved you to save you. You see, for in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, it says where he says, "In in an acceptable time, quoting from the book of Isaiah, in an acceptable time I have heard you and in the day of salvation I have helped you. That's when we discover what God has done for us. Behold, he says, now is the accepted time. Now, not tomorrow. Isn't that Chicanoville, man, where it says, you know, mañana. Oh, mañana, está bien, mañana. No, not tomorrow. There may not be a tomorrow, folks. That's the thing. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When is now? Now. <laughs> That's right. But there will be a day. In other words, there will be a day of completion. I want you to remember these two verses. First of all, Revelation 10, verse 7, it said, <clears throat> but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel. Now this is the seventh trumpet that brings in the seven bowls of wrath. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, notice, the mystery of God would be finished. Because you see, the, the bowls are poured out in rapid succession, as we've seen in one chapter. The mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. Remember what it says in Revelation 15, verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. Seven angels having the seven last plagues. You see the connection here to the seven bowl judgments? It says, for in them the wrath of God is complete. It has come to its conclusion. There is a day when all hostilities will cease. 
God will bring to an end that dispensation of what we have called the day of, of uh, the days of the Gentiles. And Jesus will come and establish his throne in the city of Zion, Jerusalem. He'll open wide that valley just east of the eastern gate. And he will come into Jerusalem. And he will sit on the throne of David. The last part of this chapter we get to just see together the whole thing. It says there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake. Going back to the thunders and thunders and lightnings, I, I made the connection with, with Mount Sinai when, at the giving of the law. But why is the law given? The scriptures are very clear, both to the Jews and to the believers in Jesus. The law was given as a tutor, a schoolmaster to point us to Christ. So, what has been disobeyed for centuries? The law. What has man tried to change for their own benefits so that they can do their sins the way they feel, you know, that God is really not really going to judge them for because, you know, God's a good God and he's not going to judge anyone. Change the law. What this is telling us is that from the time that the law was given to the time that we are seeing the last judgment of God, the law hasn't changed. Do you understand that? The law doesn't change. Psalm 19 tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is, if it's perfect, it is complete. Remember that the necessity of understanding perfect in the scriptures is completeness, wholeness. We know it in one, in one Hebrew word, shalom. I mean, you, you can use it as a greeting if you like. That's fine. That's, that's the way it should be. But what we are saying to someone is, oh, may God's wholeness and completeness and blessing of perfection and, uh, be upon you. So there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. Which means there will be. And there was a great earthquake. Again, remember that John is is just retelling what he is given in a vision of the time yet to come. And there was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since since men were on the earth. A great earthquake. Remember that word great. How, How prominent it is here in this chapter. And now the great city. Was, was divided into three parts and, and the cities of the nations fell. We'll, we'll deal with this a little bit more in chapter 17 and 18. But the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. If we take Babylon back to its inception, where is Babylon? In the plains of Babel. By the Euphrates River. 
And then every island fled away. And the mountains were not found. Now, this can be very literal. That with that great earthquake, much of the topography of the earth is going to change. Quite possibly everything except maybe the area of the city of Jerusalem. That God will protect her. But nonetheless, the topography can change. So this can be very literal. There are also other ways of looking at this, let's say from the spiritual standpoint or from a metaphoric standpoint or metaphorical standpoint. You know, a lot of times we say, well, mountains in the scriptures are always mentioned about governments and high places. Well, if that's the case, all the governments of the world that were against God and against his Christ can't be found. And no nation by itself or nations gathered together, islands and governments can stand the judgment of God when he finally brings it all to a close. That helped you understand that a little. So we can see it literally as some topography changes, but we can also see it from the standpoint of metaphor and see it that, you know, uh, you know that it is... Uh, symbolic, as it were. That's the point I wanted to make. And great hail, great hail, great earthquake, great Babylon, great city, great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. Men blaspheme God. Now think about this. God is judging them. But man continues to blaspheme. Men blaspheme God because of the plague of the hail since that plague was exceedingly great. What we see in this verse, or in these verses, I should say, is the final destruction of every religious, political, governmental, and educational institution that man has built apart from God. Every religious, political, and educational institution that man has built apart from God has seen in this passage, it's final destruction. It will be the collapse of all of man's hopes and all of man's dreams apart from God. And even still, men will refuse to submit to God's rule, as we see here in verse 21, as men will continue to blaspheme the Lord because of the great hail. Now, it is quite significant to me, if I can go ahead, if you will, and and speak on the plague of hail before we go back and touch on a couple of other things, that hail has been an instrument of God's judgment against Egypt in the book of Exodus, against the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, against apostate Israel, and it will be used in the uh, war of Gog and Magog, the uh, war of the uh, Ezekiel 30 and 39, which we didn't, haven't talked about because it's a different war. And one day we'll talk about it. But it is never used. Hail as a judgment is never used as a corrective discipline, chastisement or judgment on God's own children. Never. Therefore, for those people who don't believe that there's the rapture of the church at the time that we have have seen it described in the scriptures, before the great day of tribulation, before the great day of the Lord, 
Don't, don't understand these little, very specific kinds of things that we have to understand. This day is not going to be easy for anyone around. It is a judgment against the unbeliever. And listen, God's not just going to like, just throw stuff and see what I can hit. (laughs) He knows exactly where every hailstone is going to fall. The hailstones, as I said, were, uh, will weigh about 45 kilograms, which is approximately 100 pounds. That is what a weight of a talent is. So getting back to the earthquake mentioned in verse 18, the Apostle John was informed that this would be the greatest earthquake of all time and the resulting description indicates that it will affect the whole earth with the possible exception of the land of Israel and especially the city of Jerusalem. But as mentioned, the great city of Babylon will be split into three parts. And its fall will be described in more detail in chapter 17 and 18, so we'll, 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 we'll study that starting next time. <laughs> but what is more significant for us now is that which, that which is said about Babylon being remembered before God. Think about that. How do you want to be remembered before God? How do you want to be remembered before God? Let me give you a little hint. (laughs) As if I'm telling you how you should be remembered before God. Will we be remembered before God because of all the wonderful things we've done or the great wonderful things that we can do? That we've taken credit for when God has given us the talents and the gifts that we all have been blessed with? They're really His and yet... None of us can take real credit for it, huh? Or will we be remembered before God like the tax collector who in that account that Jesus gave of the tax collector and the Pharisee at the, at the steps of the, of the temple where the Pharisee was boasting of what, you know, the great things he had and had done and all of this and, and yet just, you know... A stone's throw away, there's, there's this tax collector beating his breast and saying, Oh, woe is me. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. And yet, when we let Jesus come into our lives, when we receive the Lord, when we confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when we received Him as our God and our, and our Lord, something was placed upon us. The very righteousness of Christ. Not our righteousness, His righteousness. So that when we stand before Him, what does He remember? the blood of His only begotten Son. And He says to us, Enter in, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my kingdom.
Babylon? What are they going to be remembered for? God is going to remember them to give them, as it says in the scriptures, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Simply, this portion of the verse tells us that the Lord will give Babylon the strongest kind of outpouring of his judgment. A passionate outburst of anger. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The word thumos is this passionate outburst of anger in his standing state of anger, which is the word orge. So you have thumos and orge together in one passage. Well, there. Where is it? There it is. Great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Fierceness, wrath. Thumos, orge. That's a lot of wrath. Consider, if you will, the, this description given by Isaiah. Think about this. Isaiah 24, verses 19 through 23. The earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. Kind of sounds like where we're at here, right? The earth is shaken exceedingly. The earth shall reel to and fro like a drunkard. I'm not going to act that out for you. And, and shall totter like a hut. A hut that's not built of a firm foundation, you know, so it's kind of teeter-tottering. Uh, it's transgression shall be heavy upon it, and it will fall and not rise again. It shall come to pass in that day, when it says that day, that's the day of the Lord, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will punish on high the host of exalted ones, and on the earth the kings of the earth. So now do we have a connection with where we are here? And who's being spoken of? The kings of the earth, where? At the end, near the end, as it were, of, the, of this tribulation period, they will be gathered together, what we are seeing here in this chapter of Revelation, as prisoners are gathered in the pit and will be shut up in prison. After many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be disgraced and the sun ashamed for the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders gloriously. What that just really means is that if God, if Christ is going to set up his rule in, in the very throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, the glory of that place will, will cause the moon and the sun to be totally ashamed. It cannot have the kind of glory that will be given to that throne of David. Because of Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that Isaiah speaks of the earth staggering to and fro like a drunkard. I mean, this, this could possibly be related again to a shift in the axis of the earth. So that the earth is no longer tilted at this uh, 23.5 degree uh, angle that it is today. Which would then give the world a temperate climate throughout the world as in the days when the earth was created. What we studied about four years ago back in Genesis. 
where the water canopy, uh, uh, canopy fil- uh, filtering out the harmful radiation and thus there would be no winds and no storms. Uh, a climate which may very well be experienced in the kingdom age. So the shift itself is also going to provide the kind of environment that we saw in the garden and in the earth during the time of the Garden of Eden. But as the axis shifts, these cataclysmic events upon the face of the earth will be so great that every island will be removed out of its place. The topography of the earth will be greatly changed as well. So things will go back to the way it was. Do you remember that after the flood, the topography of the earth finally settled eventually to what we have had for nearly 5,000 years or, or thereabouts, about 6,000 years actually? Everything's going back to the original plan of God. But are we getting a description of the kingdom age by this shifting axis? Well, let's see. Turn to Isaiah 35 if you're still in Isaiah. Turn to Isaiah 35. We're actually going to go through this whole chapter in five minutes or less. The wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them and the desert shall rejoice and bloom as a rose. You know that we've been given a little picture of this very verse that speaks of really the whole of the earth. We've been given a small picture of in the nation of Israel today right as we speak. That's why I encourage you to go to Israel with us if you can and I, I certainly pray that you will pray to go but that you get to see the blessing of the miracle of what has happened and transpired in a desert, in a land that was completely desolate. Now there grows the most beautiful flowers, the most beautiful fruit. And, and, and that Israel is, is in, in essence, very proud of, of the fact that they, they're the top one, two, or three growers of all of these things, flowers and roses and fruit. They developed a, a banana that you know, isn't up high, it's really low, so... And they keep them covered. They, they, they've done all of this stuff. God has allowed them. God gave them the wisdom to do that. So, goes on and it says, It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. As, as often as, as, as Israel gets attacked, as often as Israel gets, you know, it goes through the struggles that it goes through, there's, there's a joy in their hearts as Jews, as the children of God. I mean, it's not, a, it's not a somber land when you go there. I mean, there's, there's still sinners and there, God still has to deal with them about a lot of things, but there's something there about the people in the land that just encourage you when you go. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. We're going to talk about that another time, but that, that's, of course, Lebanon is one of the nations that right now the Hezbollah are in Lebanon. Not a good thing, but later on Lebanon will be okay. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the excellency of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. This is what is going to be the very essence of the, of the kingdom age, the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. Everything will become perfected. Everything will be strengthened once again. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With a recompense of God, He will come and save you. 
And then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And then the lame shall leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb sing for water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The parched ground shall become a pool and the thirsty land springs of water. In the habitation of jackals where each lay there shall be grass with reeds and rushes. A highway shall be there and a road and it shall be called the highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. You know, when you think about that, the unclean not passing over, it isn't like they're just saying the size of it. Okay, no unclean coming. The unclean don't want to be on it. The unclean don't want to be on that road. Because notice this, it says the unclean shall not pass over it, but it shall be for others. Whoever walks the road, although a fool, shall not go astray. Once we were fools for the world, now we're fools for Christ. You get the picture? No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast go up on it. It shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. There is a reminder. There is a a reminder in these verses that not all shall perish due to this great battle that we have seen mentioned in this chapter. Many will see the Lord himself as his feet rest on the Mount of Olives and certainly the prophecy shall be fulfilled. The prophecy of Zechariah 12 verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they pierced. They will look on me whom they pierce. Who is that? It's Jesus. They will see him. And as a matter of fact, we get a reminder of that in Revelation. Oh, by the way, we're not finished with that verse. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. That was Jesus. Oh, our Messiah. But the reminder is given in Revelation 1.7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. And every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. Every eye will see him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. So, we're given the general view of the a general view of the end of the seven-year period of tribulation. But now we go back and we look at detail. Chapter 17 and 18. So, I hope and pray that we all know Jesus, that we're in love with Him, And that we're waiting for him. And we're looking for him. Keep looking up. Because your redemption draws near. He's coming.